Hey everybody, this is Chris, and this at last is She-Ra. Um, it's been a long time coming. Uh, it has been disruption after disruption after disruption for the podcast. The last one, a very happy one, uh, Katrina and I had our daughter, Violetta. Um, she arrived uh, two weeks earlier than planned, uh, thus the sudden and unannounced further delay in the podcast release schedule, uh, thus the abandonment of the gameable Twitter uh, for uh, quite a while here. It's just been a really busy, exciting time. Uh, there's been no time for podcasting whatsoever. No time for editing this podcast, um, which is why I'm addressing you now. This episode was edited by Dan Mulcairn of Smash Fiction, uh, the wonderful podcast that you all know about by now. When it became clear to me that I was not going to have time in the foreseeable future to edit uh, these two She-Ra episodes uh, that Megan Bob, also from Smash Fiction, was kind enough to record with me, uh, I turned to Dan, uh, and Dan delivered. He edited both of these episodes that you're going to hear about She-Ra. It was a really quick turnaround, which I proceeded to squander by not having time to even add the theme music to these episodes. But he did a great job. Huge, huge thanks to Dan. If the episode sounds a little different, uh, that's going to be why. Uh, it's gone through this whole process where I sent it to Dan, and he sent the MP3 back, and then I added the music. But I really like these episodes. The thing to know going in is that these She-Ra episodes are going to be the last episodes of Gameable in this run. As we discussed in the special Gameable bulletin that I released last time, there will be more Gameable at some point and in some form. It's just going to be a while. Having a baby kind of changes everything scheduling-wise, and I had already been thinking for other reasons about changing the format, maybe changing the hosting of the show. Tumblr's going through a whole thing right now and was already generating like broken links, so I would have to manually change the Twitter links to the episodes. It's a whole thing. It's time to revamp the show. So when Gameable does come back, it'll be in some other form. But for now, enjoy the show. Enjoy the last of this run of Gameable Saturday Morning. If you by chance have been trying to talk to the podcast on Twitter, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I may or may not get back in touch with you. Everything is just a bit of a blur right now. But I do want to thank everyone for their kind words about uh, the podcast about the baby. Um, thank you to everyone, and thank you to everyone for listening to the show all this time. Um, I don't want this to sound like a goodbye. The show will be back, but it'll just be a little hiatus, so stick with us. There will be something on this feed again, and uh, I will see you then. Oh, and one more thing. There is no background segment in this episode. I think there's something in the audio still where we refer to a background segment. What often happens is that I'll drop in background later. I record it after the fact, so the guest doesn't have to sit through it. And in this case... Between episode recording time and background recording time, a baby happened, so background is canceled. I'm sure there's lots of interesting information about Shira that I could have brought up, and the big salient point that you definitely should know is that if you've somehow missed it, there is a new Shira on Netflix, and you ought to go watch it. Without further ado, Shira. Where does Lucky get off preaching to me about morality when I just saw him napping through the destruction of a woodland village? Talking horses in fiction. Yay or nay? Oh, Bob. <laughs> the show is canceled. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs> anyway, we'll answer both of these questions, maybe, as we discuss She-Ra on this week's episode of the Gameable Saturday Morning Podcast.
Welcome to episode number 59 of the Gameable Saturday Morning Podcast, a tabletop role-playing podcast. We're watching cartoons from across the era of Saturday morning animation, delving into their plots, settings, and characters for gaming inspiration. I'm Chris Newton. And I'm Megan Bob. Megan Bob is here. The final piece of the puzzle <laughs> I've been trying to assemble <laughs> low these many years of Gameable. At last, the Smash Fiction set is complete, and I get like a plus five to some shit. I'm very excited about this. And I'm excited about the show that we're talking about as well, She-Ra. It's going to be wonderful. For any of our listeners who don't know about you, Bob, will you please tell us who you are and uh, what you do and what is your experience with She-Ra and role-playing and everything? Just tell us. Okay, so I am from the real world and from Smash Fiction on the internet. And Smash Fiction, I'm sure you've heard of it. We argue about things, but in a fun way, because we're friends, not enemies. Although sometimes <laughs> we definitely question that after certain episodes, we're like, oh, no, I can't believe we did this. But most of our episodes are very full of love. And then uh, we also do an RPG, which is mainly where my RPG experience is from. And that RPG is Extraordinary League that Dan runs, and also that Dan made. He crafted it by hand out of bits of the Marvel system and probably some dark magic. Uh, my other gaming experiences, uh, I played a one-shot of Masks once. How did that go? Tell us about your character. Oh, God. Uh, it was like 11 o'clock at night, and it was the first thing, I, it was the first RPG thing I'd ever done, and I... We had, you know, Dan handed out the little sheets and said, all right, choose which one you want. I think I went with the mutant one or, yeah, I think it was the, the mutant type one. And there was one of the options was for sort of like uh, plant-based powers and then also technology. So I just circled both of those and then started cackling hysterically and named my character Leaf Hacker because I thought the idea <laughs> of tapping a leaf and going, I'm in was too great, <laughs> even though it was the stupidest thing in the world. So yeah, that's that was my genius concept. That's good. I like it. I, I like leaf hacking. Yeah, I, I like masks a lot. It's, it's a great game to have an experience with when you're like not a very experienced player. Oh, and also, sure. I think it gives you the ability to like bring a lot to the game when you're someone who's not already steeped in role playing because like powered by the apocalypse in general, but masks especially doesn't really require or in many cases benefit from like quote unquote mastery of like what we do in role playing. Oh, it's, yeah. it's a bit different, you know. I've also GM'd a version like a a session of terrible, which is the one that's like you just write your stuff on a sheet and the the mechanic is tearing the paper. Mm. And that was very fun. Cause that's about the level I'm at is going like, all right, you're just gonna see if you can do a physical feat that's quite challenging to do. Can you tear a piece of paper in a way that doesn't like destroy your entire sheet and mean that you're dead. What is your uh, history with Shira? When did you find out about Shira? Have you watched it before? I knew about it, that it existed, and then that is all. And then December of 2017 happened, and Dan was God. We we're doing um, a small arc of Extraordinary League, and I'm not. At some point, the Honor Sword came up, which I guess is called the Sword of Protection, but for our purposes, we just called it the Honor Sword. And my character got to have it. 
And they were, everybody was going like, say the thing. And I was going, what thing are you talking about? What is happening? So they had to say very patiently, say for the honor of Grayskull. And I was like, okay. And then Dan described the whole thing happening. It was like, oh, oh, all right. And then my husband later said, you really probably should watch some She-Ra for this next episode you're going to be recording. So then I finally watched some She-Ra and was like, this is pretty delightful. Yeah, it is. I heard you talking about it on, I guess it must have been Extraordinary League or on Smash Fiction at some point, and that's what made it click for me. I, I recall with pride that I think the first words I ever said to you were, will you be ungameable to talk uh, about She-Ra? Yes, I remember you saying that. And I was like, oh, I'll, I'll do anything. Absolutely. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I I was excited because I have wanted to talk about She-Ra on Gameable. It's one that I watched as a kid, and I knew that I had, but honestly, until rewatching it for this very recording, I didn't realize how much I had watched She-Ra. There was a lot of stuff I remembered that I thought was He-Man. Oh, that wow. Is She-Ra. Like, Mantena was one of my favorite action figures oh, that I had. Really? Well, okay, what does the action figure do? I feel like his eyes bug <gasps> out, but um, it's a little bit hazy because, you know, I was watching this show when I was probably four or five years old, and about that time, they started me going to church, and I decided that TV was from the devil because it was a fundamentalist church, and so I had to give away all my Aww. toys. Yeah, so Mantana was a casualty, unfortunately, <sighs> of my um, religious zeal. I've got some feelings about Mantana. Well, I, I hope we'll get into that. But uh, yeah, so I I really liked She-Ra as a kid, and I'm I'm excited to talk about it, especially like from an earnest perspective of like trying to enjoy the show because there's certainly a lot to make fun of with oh, Shira, yeah. but I think you're missing a dimension of it if you don't also try to get into the mindset of like this is just like such a fun bright show it so is and I think the stuff that you could make fun of about it is easily the least interesting and noteworthy stuff about it it's like not even not even low-hanging fruit it's just the fruit that's already fallen on the ground I don't need that ground dirt fruit. fruit. Yeah, dirt fruit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree completely. And I, I think, you know, we'll have occasion to talk a little bit about some of the uh, the flaws in the show or like the goofy things about the show. But there's actually a lot here that is straight up gameable. I, I agree. From time to time, we watch a show that like I begin to think about like the big glossy, you know, role playing book of the show that I would love to like flip open and pick out stuff for my character. And this is one of those. I really actually would love to play She-Ra. Oh, yeah. Before we get into talking about She-Ra, let's have an unusual serial segment here. Okay. So normally, I'll ask the guest to bring me a cereal <laughs> that we will eat. And like while we're doing our like kind of awkward getting to know you pre-podcast banter, like let's put everybody at ease, then we also eat cereal, right? Because what's better for social cohesion than like let's crunch into mics together mm-hmm. um, and not be self-conscious about it at all. But on this occasion, we've picked a cereal more to discuss than to eat because... You do not eat cereal. I don't. I don't eat grains. I'm boring. I'm not going to go into it. That's just a thing about me, and it's boring. I trust you. I believe you. So why don't you tell us, though, what you like about grape nuts? Oh, my God, man. Grape nuts are... So, yes. Are they for old people? Yes. Are they full (laughs) of fiber and probably, I don't know, nutrients for a cereal? Yes. However... One of the very few cereals, and I emphasize cereal as opposed to like other breakfast gruels that you might enjoy, <laughs> that it is good warm. And so it is something that if it is late at night and you are, you know, seven years old and your cooking expertise extends to <laughs> the microwave sometimes, then the idea of having warm cereal is just so comforting. 
also whenever it warms up, it's a little bit sweeter than whenever it's cold. So you also get this like little burst of brown sugariness. I'm just feeling a lot of simpatico right now. The thing you may not know, dear listener, is that I discovered one time while editing Make a Dumbcast, uh, Bob and I are the same person, uh, the what? very same person. Oh my God, and, this is, I'm finding this out. <laughs> uh, I remember tweeting about this. I While I was editing Make a Dumbcast, I had to transcribe. I Basically, I recorded something and the quality of the recording was not what I wanted, but I didn't have a script or anything. I was just talking. And so I had to transcribe the episode so that I could like use it as a script, basically to re-record a segment oh, of it no. that the audio didn't work out. So I had to slow my voice down to like 75% and discovered that you and I have the very same vocal inflections, just I talk a little bit faster than you do. Oh my God, that's right. I remember reading this tweet. And I thought it was just a coincidence, but now hearing that as a seven-year-old, you also liked to eat warm uh, grape nuts, which is like such an old person food. It so is. Yeah, like we came from the same lab or something because that's a weird thing for us to have in common. I do defend grape nuts. I don't eat them now very much uh, because I enjoy other warm cereals when I want to eat that and I can cook now. But <laughs> Oh man, seven-year-old you is looking at you now going like, damn, that guy's got it all together. <laughs> but uh, no, grape nuts are great. And um, particularly if you can't cook and you're seven years old, oh. I know that's a major part of my demographic, then you need to get yourself some grape Absolutely. nuts uh, and heat them up. Although... I have a question about this. Okay. When I was little, I had the idea of putting Teddy Grahams into milk and using them as cereal. And then lo and behold, here comes the company crushing the little guy, my ideas, (laughs) and creating their own Teddy Graham cereal. Oh, what? Because they realized the same thing I did, which is that anything that is sweet and that texture and that size can be cereal. Huh. My question is, can you heat up other cereals and we just don't? Okay, so I think, and this is going to get into some culinary shit, that other cereals do not have the structural integrity (laughs) of a grape nut. Because a grape nut is essentially, it is about as tough as like a small, like a a wheat germ or something like that. It is a Mm -hmm. wheat berry or a farro grain or something like that. It's that tough. I think it can stand up to being heated and just soften pleasantly. But if you did that to cornflakes, like cornflakes will it'll turn into mush if you stop and just ignore them for five minutes. So I think yes. other cereals cannot. I just don't think they can handle it. I think you're absolutely right about cornflakes. But I think that is also like maybe the worst possible exit. Like cornflakes like life. If you stop to think <laughs> about them for five seconds, they just become misery but other cereals like some some cereals are a little tougher like i'm thinking of more of a granola like cereal okay i you know what i can agree with that crispex maybe crispex like had some structural engineering behind it that they were like oh it doesn't (laughs) it takes longer for it to go soggy in milk uh yeah maybe maybe that i was actually just thinking of um what dan mulcairn we were just talking about he brought a crackling oat bran oh oh my Uh, god we are so many old people (laughs) can't believe this. <laughs> that shit's indestructible. I don't I don't think you could even like destroy that stuff if you wanted to with a microwave. It's so hard. It's so tough. It might be good warm and that might soften it up a little too. I found I did, that to be like a little crunchy. Did you did you guys eat that together or was that a thing that you you experienced at a previous occasion and then said I decline. Thank you. I shall I shall just keep my memories of having chewed that hard. <laughs> no, uh we did eat that together. Oh my god. Uh, right before visionaries and that's why i think that episode was so good is because there was kind of like a foxhole connection that 
Dan and I always had after that. together. All right. Uh, at some point, we have to stop talking about grape nuts, and now's a good time as any. So uh, let's move on. Let's recap some of these plots. Normally, we talk about the premise of shows that we discuss on Gameable, but in some cases, we decide to recap an episode that pretty much covers the premise. And in this case, I know you're taking on the ambitious task Both. of recapping, at least, you know, in part, the first five episodes, which were actually released as a, a movie, of She-Ra, which pretty much tell the whole story of like who she is and why she does what she does. So I will leave it to you. What happens at the beginning of the series? Okay, so the sorceress is having a bad dream and then she calls on Adam and is like, oh my gosh, something, wait, I, I have to send you to this other dimension. And then he gets sent to this other dimension, which is Etheria, and he wanders into the local bar that happens to be nearby, very like Sherwood, and mm -hmm. uh, then finds out, oh my gosh, there's this guy who's taken over. I think Hordak's folks show up at that point and uh, finds out about the rebellion and all that other stuff, and he meets Bo and he meets Cowl, and then Force Captain Adora, which that phrase is said a lot. Uh, she shows up and then there's a fight. <laughs> he man swings a woman around, <laughs> throws her into a like a cart of watermelons and says, you're no lady. And that was a real, real defining moment about that show, I guess, for me. Of like, what is this? <laughs> um, I really appreciate I, I, you have just such a great eye for like what parts of this need to be emphasized because we're like Eternia, Etheria, Sword, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I know this one thing that E-Man <laughs> does that is just that they sat in the writer's room and were like, no, this is what it is. Absolutely watermelons. And you're like, OK, well, because I was like, do they have watermelons on Etheria? But I guess they do. Maybe they're not called that. Delicious melons. Exactly. They're called some other bullshit, but they're watermelons. Yeah, exactly. We all know. Guys, we all know what they are. Adora and He-Man have some conversation, and uh, he gets in prison on Beast Island, and then he's like, oh, you know, you just don't, you get out there, see what it's really like. She's like, well, maybe I will. And you find out she hasn't really been outside the Fright Zone, uh, <laughs> which is just the, oh man, the, what is it? The sprawling industrial techno complex Something as the wiki Grayskull describes it as, which is a beautiful phrase. I love that phrase. And it occurred to me as I read it that it describes no fewer than two levels of Sonic the Hedgehog as well. Uh, yeah. Anyway, continue. You know what? There is actually some real overlap between Hordak and Robotnik. I feel like there's mm. some real, I don't know. They go to the same conventions, probably. That's what I'm, that's the vibe I'm getting. Yes. Let's, let's table this discussion for now. But <laughs> later, I definitely want to, I want to dig into... Would Robotnik and a Hordak get along or hate Oof. each other? Okay. And so she actually does get out there and goes to a different village and she sees that the Horde is mean and not not the great kind people that she had been led to believe that they were. And then uh, sort of gets her powers and then she and He-Man find out that they're siblings and she goes back to Eternia, gets to hang out with her parents for a while. Within maybe a day, she has to go back to Etheria because Skeletor and Hordak team up and it's adorable and then they betray each other and that's adorable and then He-Man goes back with her and they hang out for a while and they do some great stuff and then they go back to say goodbye to the parents and then Adora goes back to Etheria to aid the rebellion and her family's like, yeah, that's cool. We love you, dear. And it's like, oh my God, you just saw your daughter for like, you've seen her for less than 48 hours now. But you know, you gotta let your kids grow up, I guess. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, she's making she's making such a great decision. I love the way that Adora is portrayed. She's so much more interesting to me than Adam is. Oh, yeah. I think this introduction for her is really strong. And it would be weird to be in the parents position because it's like, on the one hand, you know, you want her to stick around. But on the other hand, she just showed up. She's got this whole other life. I mean, granted, like part of this is it's a kid's cartoon and we can't like, you know, agonize over the kitchen sink about what our relationship is going to be now. But I don't know. It's it's cool. I actually really like the spinoff aspect of this where this is pretty firmly grounded in the world of He-Man that we remember. Mm-hmm. So like if you watch He-Man, you get that like this sword is like his sword. You know, Hordak has this connection to Skeletor. At the same time, there's a very strong message that comes across, which is like Etheria is important in its own right. That's where She-Ra belongs. It's what she cares about. And she can hang with He-Man and his whole setting, but she doesn't want to be there. She wants to go do this, which I think helps make her not seem like second rate He-Man. Yeah, there's a she seems very different. Um, and her whole world is grittier, I would say, than Eternia is. That's such an interesting way to think of it, to frame it. Off the top of your head, like if you watch this show superficially, you don't feel like the show with the butterfly plane is grittier. But when you think about it, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like it is a it is a dystopian world in the sense that like right? it's run by the bad guys. That blows my mind that it is a sparkly dystopia. I really appreciated what you wrote as we were doing the prep doc for this episode about how it's weird that you're not safe anywhere in Etheria, despite all these kind of idyllic locations. It is really Um, unsettling. Yeah. I love that about it. But yeah, it is like, I don't know how children would feel about it. How did you feel about it? I don't remember being particularly affected by it, at least consciously. Like Mm -hmm. it didn't feel weird to me. I'll tell you what I did remember. What I did notice at the time is that Hordak, if I recall correctly, was packaged as a He-Man action figure. Hmm. Like he came in the box for He-Man figures and all of the She-Ra characters came in different packaging, which, you know, even more so than the now toys are very gendered in that way. Mm -hmm. So She-Ra was for sure in like girl packaging. Okay. And that really reinforced for me the idea that it's like Hordak and his forces were from a different like action cartoon. Oh, and it was sort of intruding into She-Ra's world, which was more of a like cartoon for girls world. <sighs> so in whatever way I was conscious of it, I think that the phenomenon that you're talking about of like, you know, the scorpion tanks rolling into like the pretty meadow with the unicorns and everything, that dichotomy did show up for me. It just didn't strike me so much as incongruous as like, okay, this is like a battle between like the nice sweet people and the nasty guys from the boys cartoon. Hmm. who are like invaders in a way. Oh, that so. makes sense. Because even the art style sometimes, like not just the color palette, but like even the art style itself can sort of shift between those. And it's very odd to see them side by side sometimes. Yeah, I, I would be very curious to see more of like the concept art for oh, yeah. this show. Because I, I wonder how much of a contrast um, there is there. Because like if you look at the um, the pre-cartoon art of like Mantena, he looks quite different and he looks much more monstrous, Oof. which seems incongruous with the what must have been an originally like very soft and feminine design for characters like Mermista or whoever. Anyway, so yeah, does that bring us to the end of the movie? Like that's where we leave off, right? She goes back to Etheria. Yeah, I mean, I think there it is a lot of back and forth and a lot of like small things happen because <laughs> it is five episodes condensed into a film. So it does, it's got a lot of Lord of the Rings issues in terms of wait, <laughs> when is it over? Which don't get me wrong, I love Lord of the Rings. Do not at me about that. I do love it. Okay. 
That aside, yes, it is very confusing. And then it just ends with or just saying, all right, I've healed Swiftwind and then I'm going to stay here and Etheria is going to be free one day. And then that's it. Do you recommend this series of episodes? Like if someone wanted to get into She-Ra, would they be better off watching these or should they just dive into the main series? Ooh, okay. I think that in order to understand some of the weirder ongoing stuff that frames everything, yeah, you probably do need to see it. That then goes to premise, right? Because there's always this question we have of like, what's important enough about the setup that you kind of need to have it to game it or to get the most out of watching the show? Yeah. And oftentimes, like with He-Man, a lot of the backstory of He-Man is in no way necessary to appreciate (laughs) He-Man or to game it. You're almost better off not because a game that actually dealt with like where Castle Grayskull comes from and all that stuff would not feel like the He-Man cartoon. Oh, no, not at all. Here, I feel like the fact that, for example... You know, Adora was raised by Hordak and used to be like a captain for the Horde. Yup. And then becomes She-Ra really does inform her character and her relationships. Not that you need to see it to appreciate the rest of the show, but certainly for gaming, that's like a key thing about that character. Absolutely. And the fact that it wasn't just happenstance, it was a kidnapping Mm -hmm. and that she was raised. And that also that Shadow Weaver is sort of a mother figure or at least tries to sell that as, you know, tries to use that as manipulation. You're like, oh, this is what kind of household this was. All right. Unsettling. Oh, yeah. Shadow Weaver. (sighs) Another character we will have things to say about. What, What do you think about this right off the top as like, setting up the engine of the series in gaming terms do you feel like let's say that you had a group of players who were like run shira for us bob and so they watch this movie do you feel like it sets up adventures so that you can then like bring them in for the first session and be like okay you're members of the resistance and you're gonna go strike at hordak in this way you know like yes does it seem promising to you yes um and this is maybe getting deep into the things that i think are really interesting and gameable about it which may not function i don't know because i think of a lot of things in very fanficy terms which is a kind of rpg i guess in that you play it alone and make up all the rules but um, oh man you're you're blowing my mind with this idea of fanfic <laughs> as like a sol- uh, like a basically a solitary rpg that's it is because wow. okay. well, there are rules of the world and if you wanted you have to follow them a bit otherwise it becomes utterly unrecognizable and then you're just writing fiction so there is some RPG-ishness to it where you have to obey stuff, but you get to, you know, you don't have other players you're ever going to fight with, except maybe whoever's beta reading your fic. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. This, like, what what you're saying is connecting me to, like, in a larger sense, a language game, like in the Wittgensteinian mm. sense, that there are, like, rules to what we can say, and that's, like, an actual game at a table in a role-playing game where you're rolling dice, but it's more of, like, the grammar of this fictional world and the tropes of its narrative portrayal in fan fiction. You know, there are still moves we can make and moves we can't make. Yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting insight. I think the things that it sets up are, how is she going to reconcile the fact that she's now met her family and has chosen to leave them to go do this thing? And then if she completes this, you know, if she saves Etheria, does that mean she gets to go back? Is that is that mm. the end game or is the end game just defeating and like going back to Eternia doesn't really mean anything? And then also this and this is really weird to me. The fact that she was raised by Hordak means that she grew up around all the people who she's fighting with all the time now. So they must have been her siblings, for lack of a better word. Now, I'm not going to say they were close siblings or good siblings, but if she grew up around them, those are her people. 
And so I that's such a weird thought to me that she is now fighting Mantana. And it's like, yeah, but you probably ate lunch next to him every day. <laughs> and like, you probably played catch with Imp. I'm assuming, because she was yeah. a baby. That's the other thing that blows my mind, is that Hordak <laughs> didn't steal a teenager and brainwash her. He stole a baby and so had to raise an infant. So it's like, you know, there was no option to just go like, oh, well, we just don't do the things that a baby requires. It's like, mm, when a toddler wants to like, play catch or something and they're screaming, you just play catch. So I guess Hordak <laughs> did all that stuff, or somebody did. Yeah, the motivation is a little bit hazy to me. I, I I only watched part of this movie, so maybe there are like details that I didn't catch. But the plan seems weird because I, as far as I know, nobody knew that Adora was destined to be She-Ra or was going to have any kind of like influence or anything. Like they weren't planning to go back to Eternia. Yeah, no, so, that never becomes clearer, I'm afraid. Hordak was like, well, we're losing this battle. We got to get out of here. Tactical <laughs> retreat. But ooh. Baby, attack of opportunity. Let me grab this baby. <laughs> that way, we've got something to show for this failed expedition. Like, and then he raised her, yeah. like all the way raised her for no reason. I know that blows my mind. It's like, and it's not even framed as a. This will really show them. This is going to grind <laughs> their gears back on Eternia. It's not even that. It's like it doesn't even occur to him, or it's not a ransom either. No. Just you know, it's like you know. I guess I always wanted to be a father or something. Okay. <laughs> What is your deal, Hordak? You're a weirdo. It's like if you broke into somebody's house, but then they caught you and they came downstairs with their baseball bat. And so you left, but you just took their cat. Yeah. And then just raised their cat. Just they're like, it's, and I, you know what? I'm going to, this cat is my cat now. And it's cool. <laughs> this cat's really useful around the house. I like it. Yeah. So uh, a weird introduction to the character, but it definitely does set up a lot of fun stuff that could be explored in gaming. I, I like your point about the end game. You know, where does this go? Because I think in play, you would want to see some kind of progress or at least be able to track like where is my character going with this mm. whole like resistance versus the horde thing and having some sense of what comes at the end of that. You know, what's what's the goal? What's next for my character? What are my ongoing motivations would be really important as opposed to, you know, if you started watching this series with like episode seven, then it's this very static like she is the good guy. She fights the bad guys. And it's just always going to be that way. The way it is in Eternia, the aptly named Eternia, where he-Man is basically like, he fights Skeletor every week <laughs> and nothing ever changes. Like, and there's no prospect of anything ever changing. No, poor Skeletor. I mean, he does the best he can. I should not be <laughs> sympathetic to him, but for reasons, I'm very sympathetic to Skeletor. Let's move on to our next episode here. Uh, this is one that I picked out just because I felt like it was the kind of story that's bound to come up in your campaign if you've got like a transforming hero. So it's mm. one that we've often seen. And it digs into the backstory of these characters at least a little bit and also is just nuts. I don't know what happened with this episode, but it is mu is much more surreal than other She-Ra episodes. This is the stone and the sword. We open in the Fright Zone where Grizzlor is chatting with Hordak as they're getting some new evil up and running in their <laughs> workshop. Hordak notes that he loves the smell of a new weapon, uh, which in this case is the new weapon he has created uh, for this adventure, the Doom Balloon. Unbelievably, as far as I can tell, the Doom Balloon was never released as a toy. I do not think this was like by our news plastic Zeppelin. I think some writer just straight up thought of a Doom Balloon. It's a fun phrase. It is, isn't it? So pleasing. It's like a it's like kind of a um a Zeppelin type of thing, but it's got Hordak's, you know, face on the front, mean mug in the countryside, oh, no. of course. 
these two can't wait to do some evil. They're they're having fun. They're laughing it up. Hordak offers Grizzlor, hey, since you're into evil, I'm into evil. Why don't you come use the Doom Balloon with me? But Grizzlor starts to kind of like chicken out. And he actually is chickening out so hard that he almost accidentally knocks over Hordak's heretofore unmentioned good luck charm, which is <laughs> a, a fragile <laughs> statue of a horde robot soldier. What? I know, right? It's... Here's the thing, though. We're kind of, At first, I thought that was a weird choice. But if you think about it, 100% of Hordak's successful kills have been his own soldiers. So this is like a, like a little aspirational reminder, like of all the killing Ugh. he still has inside. Like, oh, you killed all you killed all those robots, man. Just keep trying. You'll kill a real a real person someday. What a nerd. Yes. Um, <laughs> anyway, Shadow Weaver comes in and tells these two that there's going to be a lightning storm tonight. So... It's time to strike with the Doom Balloon. This delights Hordak, who orders balloon prep to begin and brags that he's going to wreck the Whispering Woods, which is where Shira's rebellion hangs out. He starts flailing around in his joy and accidentally breaks his own good luck charm. And Aww. here's the thing, though. He breaks his own good luck charm. He blames Grizzlor, and it seems like he's about to shoot Grizzlor to death for this. Oh, my God. But it turns out that what he's actually turned his arm into is not a gun, but a vacuum so he can clean up the shards <laughs> of the oh, little God. broken statuette. And then Grizzler's like, oh, I thought you were going to blame me. You know, I thought you were going to. And then Hordak's like, you thought I was going to what? Do this. And then he hits the big button and drops Grizzler down a trapdoor. <laughs> and that's the end. That's that's the scene. It's so strange. There's just all these weird things happening here. And there's this doesn't come back. It's just weird shit. And likewise, speaking of weird shit, just to make the scene go a little faster. Back at Rebellion Base, they're in like their little tent thing. Adora is reporting that some Twiggets, which are like these little plant people that work with the Resistance, they saw the Horde testing this new weapon in the Whispering Woods. Bo, who is this bow-wielding kind of Barty-type character, uh, Adora's love interest, he's not too worried about whatever the Horde can throw at the Resistance. Glimmer says, oh, maybe we should watch out, you know, stay cautious. Anyway, at this point, it's clear that the scene is getting boring. So a Twigget comes in with a bunch of pollen and spills it <laughs> everywhere, and everybody gets stoned and starts laughing. And oh my god <laughs> so they deliver the rest of the exposition in the scene through like hysterical laughter even as they're talking oh. about like tidings of doom and so we get a great transition out of the scene as Bo chokes out through laughter like come on we better tell the others the bad news there's about to be like a horrible holocaust of fire in the whispering woods and that's it we're out of that scene now too back in the fright zone shadow weaver tells hordak they gotta go now lightning is striking it's time to go so hordak throws the big lever the doom balloon ascends and Hordak actually says, up, up, and away in my wicked doom balloon. Oh, God, that's so good. <laughs> I know, right? It scans and everything. The writers didn't have any idea where they were going with this episode, I feel, but they sure had fun getting there. They were just just writing stuff down. It was a bunch of story dice that just fell, and they <laughs> went, yep, that's right. Yep. So that's the end of that scene. Onward. They fly over the woods in the doom balloon. Cowl, who is this annoying little owl-like creature with like some kind of a membrane for flying on his back. <laughs> and Cowl's function is that whenever one of the good guys in the show says that they're going to like try to do something, then Cowl is like, oh, ho, ho, no, you're a piece of shit. You can't do anything right. <laughs> That's like, a, that is uncanny. That's Cowl exactly. <laughs> we actually had a theory. I was watching one of these episodes with my wife and I was saying like, can anybody else see Cowl or is he just like, uh, like Bo's embodied sense of inadequacy? Oh my God. Yeah, Cal flies up and warns like, Hordak is here in some kind of big balloon. 
the Doom Balloon is flying over the woods. It's getting struck by lightning. And when the lightning hits it, it refocuses the lightning into this beam that Hordak is using to just wantonly destroy plant life, destroying the whole forest. Hordak makes up a tongue twister about his own name to entertain himself. Oh, Hordak. And then Grizzlor tries to do it as well, but he can't quite. And Hordak is like, silence, fool. I just, I love these goofs. And I think that it's scary in a different way. Like, it's not so much that they're evil that is frightening as the fact that these are clearly like... 11-year-old boys, and they have a doomsday weapon. Cowl thinks the good guys should just run away from this beam. Like, it's a balloon. What can we do? But Glimmer decides to see if she can solve this problem. So she shoots it with her magical purple ray. And of course, that doesn't do anything. The Zeppelin redirects it and shoots her, and she falls over. Bo escapes with her, takes her away to safety, does a little, like, smokescreen. And this gives Adora a chance to get away and turn into She-Ra. Because that's like a much bigger part of this show I found than it is in He-Man, that Adora like needs to hide who she is from her friends and like her boyfriend. So she's always having to like sneak off. It's much more of like a Superman Lois Lane situation. So she sneaks away. She becomes She-Ra and she goes up on this like big precipice to go fight the Doom Balloon. She manages to block its beam and that starts overloading the Zeppelin. But finally her strength gives out and she falls off the precipice. And so basically the Doom Balloon blows up at the same time that she falls down and she's forcibly transformed back into Adora because, as it turns out, the stone in her sword has been cracked by all this impact. And so it doesn't work anymore and she can't turn into She-Ra. So this is, again, like kind of an inevitability. If you ever have a transforming hero, there's going to be the story where like they lose their power to transform. So she has to go to Crystal Castle to talk to Light Hope to figure this out. Let me just, <laughs> what do you think is going on with Light Hope? What, what's, what's the deal with Light Hope? I was gonna. I was hoping you knew some stuff <laughs> about Light Hope because I all I got was uh, that appearance in Flowers for Hordak, and then it was like, so it's a beam of light that is also an emotional guide who's precognitive. Yeah, I that's all I was able to glean from this, but nothing about what it is, where it comes from, why it knows things. I don't know, is light, maybe maybe time is a construct and light is everywhere at the same time. And that's why light, this was in the show Bible. <laughs> that's why Light Hope knows everything. Uh, yeah, that could be it. Um, I, <laughs> I have no idea what's going on with Light Hope. I, I did not remember this quote unquote character at all. It is just a beam of light that spouts exposition <laughs> and it sort of serves the purpose of the, the sorceress in He-Man. Inhabits Crystal Castle, which is like this magical castle in She-Ra. Anyway, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what Light Hope is, but it's some kind of a mentor figure, but only like in the most generic sense. Anyway, immediately Adora figures out she needs to go talk to Light Hope to get her sword working again. So she's got to go climb up the big mountain with Crystal Castle on the top. I do want to point out, I think one thing that really works about this plot in this episode is that she immediately has a direction to go in. So even though she's depowered, there's like a next actionable step, which I think is super important when you're doing this kind of story in role-playing games. Players do not like to be simultaneously depowered and also totally at a loss as to what they're supposed to do about it. Oh, amen. In the fright zone, Bo has been taken captive. He got sucked up into the doom balloon during the fray. Um, So now he's in this cell. (laughs) Shadow Weaver shows up and she weirdly flirts with him and Ah. is like, now I have you, my pretty pet, and tells Bo that this is his home now. Hordak, of course, interjects is no totally tone deaf to like the flirtation that Shadow Weaver is trying to do here. So he's like, ha ha, yes, it is your home here. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, meanwhile, back on the Crystal Mountain, Adora uses her sword tied to a rope as like a grappling hook and like scales the mountain. She gets all the way to the mountaintop. She goes to the door of the Crystal Castle. Light beam lets her in. And then 
he tells her that she has to go seek the first ones, the founders of Etheria, to restore her power. And they're underground. So there's this whole like dungeon she has to go through. She has to go through the Jaws of Darkness. And she has to go down through these big stairs. There's like a spiky ball that comes after her. So she has to like sled down it on a shield and outrun the spiky ball. And so then there's like a cave in. And then she has to, in a hilarious bit of like, we wrote this, but we didn't want to write this. Mm. Light Hope tells her, now you must face the never ending cave. So yeah. cut away to the fright zone. Blah, blah, blah. Haha, you are still our prisoner. Cut back to Shira. So you've made it through the never ending maze. Oh, no. <laughs> oh. And so we don't get to really see that at all. She ends up in the Rainbow Grotto. Then she goes to the Forbidden Corner. And the Forbidden Corner <laughs> leads to the Cavern of Fire. I don't really see the need to insert the Forbidden Corner between. Like, it wasn't really doing anything there. Because, um, I mean, what a terrible phrase that is. Why would you not want to use that? It's like, oh, it's a corner. This forbidden. Like, but a corner is the end of something. Like, there's nothing beyond a corner. A corner is two points meeting. <laughs> so I love the idea that like, oh, but it's a scary corner. <laughs> yes. And this corner does open up into a whole ass cavern of fire, which you would think like that's scary enough. But no, you must first pass the forbidden corner. Then you go into the cavern of fire, which is like an oven, basically a giant oven. And Cal is like, hey, Adora. You can't just walk into an oven. <laughs> and she's like, like hell I can't. And she just walks in. And then these towering fire beings find her and they're like, we are the first ones. And then they do like a little flashback scene where they show like she's shown all the traits of She-Ra in getting back here. Aww. It was brave when she climbed the mountain. Uh, she showed wisdom when she escaped the spiky ball. She was swift to avoid the cave in. It was brave again to walk through the fire. She gets brave <laughs> twice. And she did all these things for her friend, which is the ultimate expression of She-Ra values. Therefore, presto, you are She-Ra again. So she's got to go back to the Fright Zone, where Bo has been trying in vain through many a cutaway to get out of this cell uh, that they've put him in. But the bars, we've been informed, are made of... Hold on, let me check my notes to see just exactly what they're made of. Pure Morellian scrack. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean... So obviously, as you can imagine, it's slow going. Oh. So yeah, Bo's still working on it. But he says, if he can't break out, his friends will show up to save him, which cues Hordak to gloat. Even She-Ra couldn't break in here, at which point she bursts out of the fucking ground underneath him and he falls over. <laughs> and then she does that great, like, I don't know if you know this position because they reuse it at the animation sometimes, where that like cocky pose where she like lays on something. Do you know the one oh, that I mean? What? Like she's no, slouched apparently... over the side. She's like lays on the ground. God, no. What am I? How have I not seen that? It's wonderful. So she does this like cocky, you know, tranquilo pose. Grizzler goes after her. She jumps out of the way. He knocks himself out. Then the entire army of the Fright Zone charges her and she jumps out of the way and they all run into each other head first. Hordak, though, manages to grab her around the ankles with this like chain gun and reel her in. But she's still cocky on the ground. Like, he's dragging her by her ankles across the ground. And she's still just laying there in this, like, cocky pose. She asks, is this how you get girls to fall for you? And he's like, ha ha, that is a funny joke. But I'll be laughing soon. Um, and she says, you're right. Fortunately, I've still got some of that pollen from earlier. And she throws it up. And he does his, like, snort laugh. And he's incapacitated by hilarity. And then Shira takes Bo out of there. And that's it. They leave Hordak defeated, doubled over in laughter. A crazy fucking episode. That is insane. Yeah. I loved it. I enjoyed it so much. It didn't make any sense. Oh, uh, by the way, 
at the end of most episodes of She-Ra, we get Loki, right? Who is <laughs> this little yes. rainbow-colored creature who is hidden in one of the shots during the show. And then he shows up at the end and is like, did you find where I was hiding? Here I am. Blah, blah, blah. And then he tells you like some moral that you're supposed to take from the episode, theoretically. And in this case, we find that Loki was in the Endless Maze, <laughs> which cannot be canonical. There's no way that Loki should be in the Endless Maze. No one can get into Crystal Castle like that. Yet we know Loki is a character who exists in the fiction. Yeah, that's weird. I'm very upset about this. Are we supposed to take it as a fact within the fiction that Loki is really in these places where he's hidden? Your thoughts? Okay, so I'm already thinking about what would be a good purpose and use for Loki in a gaming situation or in like a a framework for thinking about Loki. And now I'm thinking of the great Gazoo from the Flintstones Mm. as sort of like in it, but not in it. Huh? I mean, no powers, but perhaps able to deliver crucial information every now and then. Okay. As fourth wall straddling kind of character is, or or you mean like, like not involved in situations? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Not involved in the situations, but still sort of there in the mix. Um, or maybe to, to use the framework of, uh, She-Ra, like what if Light Hope didn't know anything, (laughs) but was still around a lot? Yeah, I, d- I don't know how to use Lucky. I remember liking Lucky as a kid. I looked forward to seeing Lucky at the end of the episode and seeing if I'd spotted him, but I don't know how to use him in a role-playing context, and his presence in the show is very strange to me. <laughs> I just had a thought that was like, the worst thing you could do is have that be the character that delivers their karma or whatever points they get at the end of the, the thing, their experience <laughs> points. Did you find me in this particular arc? In this session? Great. Here are your points. Oh, that's here's here's a way you could use Lucky that I think would be fun. If you were playing like a um a DD or Pathfinder or something or Dungeon World module for a group of people who are playing characters inspired by Shira, then what you could do is insert Lucky as an NPC into a particular location in <gasps> the adventure. So that like it's but it's not on the main drag. So it's gonna be like they have to go to like one of the like weird hidden closets of the dungeon. And if they do, then they'll find Lucky and then everybody gets a bunch of experience for tracking him down. Oh, my God. Yes. That could be fun. But actually, you were talking about like delivering your experience. That is maybe the most analogous thing to the way that these like little moral lessons at the end of the episode goes. It makes me think a little of Mouse Guard, how there's sort of a debrief at the end of Mouse Guard sessions where we all talk out of character about like who acted according to their beliefs this session, which characters kind of relationships changed and things like that. It would actually be fun to do like a little like breakdown with Lucky of the heroism that the characters showed or didn't show. Yeah. It might be appropriate to Shira because like as we'll discuss, it's a show that is has a real like strong moral center. Mm-hmm. Anyway, all Lucky tells us about in this episode at the end is about <laughs> stick which he treats as a real word with no distinction. Oh. Um, he's like teaching children, hey, you may have heard of this thing called stick It's a big word, but here's what it means. Anyway, I don't want to I don't want to go any longer about this weird episode because I know you have a weird episode to talk about as well. I do. I want to hear about Flowers for Hordak. Okay. So Flowers for Hordak. Now, originally whenever I heard that title, I was very much picturing a Flowers for Algernon as you would. Same. Yes. So, I yeah, I was going, "Oh, Hordak is going to become insanely intelligent and then something will happen and he will lose this hyperintelligence that he has gained and that will be how he is defeated." No, he's defeated through through the medium of flowers. <laughs> this episode, very literal, mm-hmm. as, as you might have come to expect from uh, She-Ra. It starts out with Hordak's brilliant plan, Hordak and Shadow Weaver. They have a black ruby, the strongest kind of ruby. Mm-hmm. Just like Chocobos. And, oh, yeah, absolutely. 
Um, I don't understand that reference, but I'm very in favor of it. <laughs> I do know what a chocobo is. Is our black chocobos the strongest chocobos? Not exactly. The gold chocobo is the strongest chocobo, but the black chocobo is when it's the coolest chocobo. The the gothest. All right. Yes. I'm into it. Gold chocobos are, is- are for tryhards. You want to stick with the black chocobo. Oh, oh, yeah, no. None of that for me. Thank you. Yeah, so black rubies. Very cool. It has the power to cast a shadow that stops photosynthesis mm-hmm. as shadows could uh which would destroy the whispering wood so this is a real problem because the whispering wood is where everybody hides out it is the sherwood forest of shira so they would either have to like go somewhere else and get out of there or they would just have to stay here and then eventually have it uh, something that could be destroyed by the horde the other problem is that they have perfuma like the rebellion has perfuma who has flower powers quite literally flower powers uh which and somehow can circumvent the need for sunshine uh, <laughs> and just create flowers out of nothingness but also can give power and sustenance to plant life so they have to capture her so they capture her and then she was like i'm gonna go rescue her and light hope says nope don't and then that is no explanation is offered just light hope beams down says leave her it's fine (laughs) no seriously it's fine and shira does not question that for a second and I think even Bo is like, are you, are you not going to go rescue her? And she says baldly, you know, normally I would, but Light Hope said not to, so I'm not going to. <laughs> like, well, convenient to the plot, I guess. <laughs> then it splits into two. The show for the re- for the remainder of the show, it goes back and forth between what's going on in the Whispering Woods as they're trying to keep all the plant life alive. And uh, Glimmer, I believe is her name, Yes, has to act as an artificial sun for an hour a day, which uses up all of her power. And also she has to be up on, on uh, spirit. And that's really scary because it's high up. Oh, um, right. So she is not having a good time. Glimmer is afraid of heights. I, I Did we know that before yeah, this? I don't think so. But I was so upset for her because I was like, oh, she's having to do this thing for an hour. And it's so scary for her. And it exhausts her. But it's what they have to do. Yeah, for some reason. It's weird. Like, uh, it would be fine if they just said, like, oh, well, Glimmer can make light so the plants will be fine, but just for one hour a day. But they make a point of saying it's not as good as the sun. And I've known Glimmer mainly to shoot, like, purple rays, which I don't know how those relate to photosynthesis, but I feel like it can't be ideal. And so I, it's it's weird. It's like um, going out with flashlights and running around in the forest to try to keep the plants alive. Yeah, that's a good comparison. It is very like, okay, this is the best we can do. And it's <laughs> not great. Back at the Fright Zone, they have captured Perfuma. She is in a cell. And Hordax thought, is, oh, we'll put her in the darkest, dankest cell. She'll be so miserable. Ha ha ha. And uh, then you see her and she's in the cell. It's covered in flowers. It looks beautiful. She makes flowers sprout out of uh, the lock device on it, comes out and then starts making flowers and everything appear. What are the names of those guards things? What are those things called? Uh, Are these like the regular soldiers? Yeah, just the ones that are metal. They're like, uh, I think they're just called like horde soldiers or horde robots. Let me let me look it okay. up. It goes without saying that we have Grayskull Wiki open as we're recording. Oh, yeah, because it's this slides right out of the brain. They are horde troopers. Okay, so by the time that Hordak finds out that Perfuma is not miserable as he had hoped, you know, he hoped for this. He comes back down to to this dark part of the dungeon to find it covered in flowers 
And then to find that the troopers, the horde troopers, are, like, holding flowers or wearing little flower crowns. <laughs> and then one of them is dancing with Perfuma. And it is not just, you know, like, a shuffle two-step. It's sort of like a waltz. It's very formal and lovely. And everybody, Hordak's getting increasingly desperate. You know, periodically it'll cut back to the Whispering Woods as, you know, things are getting bleaker there. And they're not sure if it's going to be okay. Hordak is going, okay, okay, I'm going to communicate with them just to say, like, all right, look, if you'll give up, I'll give you Perfuma back. <laughs> and they're like, no, we're no, you know, Light Hope said not to do anything. It's cool. It's fine. And then cut back to the Fright Zone. And Hordak is now, you know, wearing a flower crown himself and is stomping on flowers and is very angry. And then finally, Shiro shows up uh, just to basically pick Perfuma up, not to rescue her, <laughs> just to collect her like a like a lift. Yes. Hordak is so angry and upset at this point that he's just relieved that she's gone. And but everybody else seems like sort of to enjoy having her around for the most part. Like I don't <laughs> think anybody else is upset by it. Only he was. Your description of this, because you have this laid-back delivery, I feel like we need to emphasize that. Hordak throughout this episode, almost from the very first moments, is losing his absolute shit about oh, this. He hates yes. flowers. I mean, at one point, like Hordak's thing is he can turn his weapons into different, like, uh, or he can turn his limbs into different weapons, turn his legs into like a rocket or like make guns out of his arms. At one point, he just turns his head into a hammer and just grabs a rock and starts yes! pounding his head into the rock, inarticulate with rage at flowers. And that's the whole episode. Like there's, there's nothing here except watching Hordak be just furious just getting into like this uncontrollable rage and yet somehow never touching perfuma like it's just that's a step too far for him yeah that is yeah you brought that up and i and i was also struck by how bizarre it is that he turns to self-harm before <laughs> he would do anything to deal with this problem that he's having or why he's even engaging with it at all like he could just leave her there to dance with those troopers and not bother himself about it but it's like it, it it upsets him so greatly that she's not miserable that that further ah. upsets him even more than the flowers. And then the flowers are like additional insult to this injury of his plan not working. That is a very interesting like psychological take on this. I think we can win the no prize with this one because if it's that he is mad that somebody's not scared of the fright zone, like it's not enough to kill her because if she dies happy, then it's still going to bug him. So he really yeah. wants to like ruin her day, which uh, like obviously her day is invincible. There's nothing you can do to perfume. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. They bargained with him and he was like, I'll give you anything you want if you'll take her. So they were like, he basically agreed to supply the rebellion to get that's how much he, how angry he was and how, how much he wanted to get rid of Perfuma. So Perfuma goes back with them and they destroy the Black Ruby and they get to have three months worth of supplies. And then, you know, it's that final coup de gras. He's angry at Montana for something, probably existing, and opens the trapdoor and the trapdoor is just full of flowers. And damn you, Perfuma. <laughs> you planned this, didn't you? <laughs> Okay, so the, the, the flowers are all in the pit because the horde troopers put them in there. Oh, that's right. That was their brilliant plan of like where they were going to get rid of them. And then they didn't tell him because he was too quick on the draw. That whole exchange. Like, did you find it strange that the horde troopers, despite definitely being robots, because we see them being crushed and like mangled throughout the series. Yeah. They do get worried. Like they get scared before he kills them. <laughs> that bugs me because it's like, Okay, so we can't kill people in a, kill in a children's cartoon, but we can kill robots who are 
totally capable of like fear and forming relationships and having feelings, they can just be ruthlessly murdered before our eyes. I guess it does bother me, but in the same way, I would prefer, I prefer this to them not feeling anything because I think, I think it gives the opportunity for them to be sort of swayed. Hmm. And that seems to be part of the She-Ra thing is that if you could have somebody on your side, that would be better than just disarming them or something like that. So I don't know. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't really considered the possibility that the Horde Troopers could actually be brought around because they are capable of of like feeling and, and reasoning. But now that you mention it, yeah, that is something that could happen. It, it takes you're right that it would take something off the table to have them be like just unreasoning like weapons. I think that to me is the distinction between, you know, I don't want to cross the streams, but the distinction between the way Robotnik seems to do things and the way that uh, that Hordak seems to do things is like Hordak's going, no, I want a robot that can feel fear. <laughs> I love that you just had that ready to go. I'm imagining your notes from when you watch the show on the side. There's a margin. It's like CF Robotnik question <laughs> mark. Oh, Matt. Yes. Alter ego. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I really enjoyed this episode i think the performances in this show are really good and would be something you would have to bring to the table like as much as with skeletor if you're gonna play hordak you gotta play hordak and if you're not gonna do it then maybe just leave him alone maybe just do something else yeah because it is all about like the snorting and the guffawing and just like the (laughs) self-satisfaction just the the dumb megalomania of hordak it's like a little bit of a different shade than from skeletor and seeing that villain be frustrated is like the whole fun of this episode and much of the fun of the series. I think all the bad guys in She-Ra are interesting mm-hmm. and memorable in ways that I would not say that like, I do not have a read on Trapjaw. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't, I don't know what his deal is or, or Triclops. Like, I don't know why Triclops cares. I get a sense of the relationship between the people who are like part of Hordak's crew, what their deal is and their relationships to one another. Yes, that is definitely something that we'll explore as we go into characters later, because I think that the villains in the show are much more compelling because they exist in a social situation. And even if that's not the focus of the show, as you say, you can you can get that. And it allows there to be like a little bit more depth, a little more interest and a little more memorability, because it's so much easier to remember a villain if you can remember like, oh, that one hates that one. So like I kind of like in that social part of my brain, they stick. Oh, yeah. So I have a last minute pick for an episode. We sometimes try to do bad episodes. And in this case, I just picked one that I thought covered some things that weren't covered in other episodes that turns out to be like a middling episode of She-Ra. It puts a lot of stuff in your toolbox to run a campaign, I feel. This episode is Horde Prime Takes a Holiday. The thing you got to know about Horde Prime is that almost every episode of of She-Ra manages not to mention this, but Hordak is actually a representative of like an intergalactic colonizing force and probably like it's semi-canonical is the younger brother of like the ruler of the galaxy, the leader of this colonizing force, Horde Prime. So he is like older brother slash boss slash emperor to Hordak. What happens is we open on this giant Horde ship where Horde Prime, who is portrayed basically as this big cloud that occasionally manifests a big metal fist to like point condescendingly at Hordak. It's, <laughs> it summons Hordak and it demands that he look after this ship, uh, the flagship of the evil intergalactic Horde, because Horde Prime is going on a tropical vacation, and which makes me think of like a big metal hand reclining in like a little <laughs> chair and like there's a drink and there's like the little yes. umbrella and everything. Yeah. The mechanical hand appears at this point, 
points at Hordak and accuses him of not doing so well against the Rebellion back on Etheria. But nonetheless, Horde Prime is going to leave this ship, which is called the Velvet Glove, because get it, he's a hand. Oh um, my god, that is such... <laughs> what? It's a bad pun, but no worse than you deserve, Bob. Uh, yeah, it's true, true. The, the Velvet Glove is the most powerful ship in the galaxy, and it is going to be left in the hands for two weeks of Hordak. Horde Prime tells Hordak if there's even a scratch on the ship, or if Hordak uses the ship for anything, he is going to mess him up when he gets back. So Mantena, who suddenly appears on the scene, like he's not been here before, <laughs> but I guess just like, oh yeah, that's right, we needed him in this scene. Anyway, he's standing here now. Mantena pipes up to tell Horde Prime that the ship is here to take him on his vacation, for which he has been waiting for 500 years. Horde Prime goes to finally get his tropical vacation. And immediately when he leaves, Hordak is like, uh, finally, the ruler of the galaxy, my evil older brother, the emperor of everything, <laughs> is gone. Time to spend two weeks driving this sh uh, spaceship around and using it to like accomplish all my ends, right? Nothing could go wrong. He decides he's going to take the Velvet Glove back to Etheria and use it to beat the Resistance, then go to Eternia and conquer Eternia as well. Speaking of Eternia, we go to Eternia where in Castle Grayskull, the sorceress is watching this whole thing happen on a screen that she just has. And she's explaining to Prince Adam, like, did you see what he just said in the privacy of his own space home that we could somehow watch? He's <laughs> coming here to invade us with the Velvet Glove. So you need to go team up with She-Ra to stop Hordak. So Adam transforms into He-Man. Then we go to Skeletor's lair. And Skeletor is also watching the Hordak channel. And he is also pissed off because he doesn't want <laughs> Hordak to take over Eternia either. So... He's thinking about this and he's like, oh, but how can I beat the Velvet Glove? Because that's an un unbeatable ship. Actually, now that I think about it, why don't I go steal the Velvet Glove? Then I'll use it to take over Eternia. So then he does the Skeletor laugh and leans way back. Later, the Velvet Glove appears above the Rebellion on Etheria. Adora rushes off to go turn into She-Ra. She gets up on Swiftwind and she actually has a little conversation with Swiftwind, who... I don't know about you, but for me, it was always a little jarring when Swiftwind talks back to her. Like, I know he can talk. Yes. <laughs> but even so. But he so, only talks sometimes. It's so weird. It really is. It's weirder than Cringer because, because Cringer talks anyway. But as far as yes. I know, like, Spirit doesn't talk, right? Yeah, that upsets me greatly that Spirit doesn't, but Swiftwind does. Does that mean that Spirit is, like, kayfabing all the time and just has to <laughs> shut up? When, when he's not in Swiftwind form, or does Swiftwind actually lose his intelligence when he oh, changes? Is God. this the flowers for Algernon we've been looking for? Oh, I don't like either of these <laughs> options. Oh. I know. Two options, both bad for horses. It's the worst case scenario. And there's another horse that it appears in a different episode that is equally mysterious and makes no sense. There's some <laughs> weird horse stuff, guys. Weird horse stuff. So Shira has this little conversation with Swiftwind where she's looking up into space at the Velvet Glove and is like, hmm, I wonder if you can fly into space. Let's find out. And so they fly up. Aboard the ship, Hordak is still trying to figure out how to work the freeze cannon. There's this great shot of him and the other villains huddled around the control panel with this like beam thing covered in ice. And they're all like, is this how you work the freeze cannon? Mantena's looking over his shoulder, bugging him about like, have you figured it out yet? Anyway, he finally does get it worked out. He shoots the freeze ray. But She-Ra is already in the air, so she turns her sword into a shield, and she blocks the beam. And so Hordak ups the power and ends up pushing her all the way back to the ground. But she's still, like, struggling to hold it back, because if it ever touches the ground, then I guess it'll freeze the world or whatever, destroy the forest, kill the rebellion. She's trying and trying to hold against it. Ice chunks are starting to fly off and freeze everything. And just as her strength is about to give out, He-Man appears and helps her hold up the shield. 
but he remarks as well like that he has never felt power like this and neither they can't hold out even together against this thing for very much longer but just then help from an unexpected corner aboard the velvet glove we see a blue hand reach from off screen <laughs> and like poke of doom take out Hordak's henchman while Hordak is busy trying to work the freeze cannon and of course it finally it's revealed it's Skeletor he teleported onto the ship he took out the henchman single-handedly and now he's going to have a big old beam fight with Hordak. Unfortunately, I feel that the animation budget was mostly spent on spaceships in this episode. So all Hordak <laughs> and Skeletor really do is stand there in like one pose and shoot little laser beams at each other. Um, <laughs> but they also hurl insults, so it's fine. Mantena and Multibot, another of Hordak's henchmen, decide to just like cheese it back to the fright zone and get out of here. So it's just the two of them on the ship at this point. She-Ra, who is, I guess, turned her sword into a telescope so she can like see what's happening up on the spaceship. She sees that Skeletor and Hordak are fighting. So she and He-Man agree they got to go do something about this. <laughs> and fortunately, I feel like this is a situation where the GM has come up with a plot and like maybe not thought through whether or not the player characters can do one thing about the evil plan, because there's a lot of improvisation here. Because there's the spaceship and it's in orbit. And what we've got here is like two sword wielding doofuses on the surface saying like, hmm, I sure wish we could do something about that spaceship. <laughs> <laughs> so fortunately, though, He-Man reaches into his little furry briefs and is like... Hey, this gift I got from the sorceress, uh, this unbreakable grappling hook of infinite length, that sure would come in handy right about now. So oh my God. <laughs> he hurls it into space and it goes all the way up into orbit and wraps around a pipe on the bottom of the spaceship. And so they, you know, are able to go up. Uh, She-Ra climbs the grappling hook while He-Man holds it down. I don't know, like, it's of unlimited length, so I'm not sure how that works. I guess, like, it just coils infinitely inside his underpants. So... <laughs> oh, my God. Things man was not meant to know. <laughs> Never, ever look into He-Man's underpants. It's good advice for many reasons. <laughs> so, She-Ra climbs up there. She turns her sword into a space helmet so she can breathe up there. Meanwhile, Skeletor actually hits Hordak with a stun blast and knocks him out. So he wins this exchange. However... Skeletor is not really is uh, Skeletor is a humanities major. Let's put it that way. He studied magic. <laughs> he doesn't really know how to operate like the freeze beam and that sort of thing. So he's just sort of like futzing with the gadgets trying to make them work. Finally, though, he does get it working again. And he celebrates with a mighty Heil Skeletor that oh, he says no. to only himself. There's no one else there. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> um, then he activates the engines and he decides to take the ship back to Eternia. So that like pulls on the grappling hook. He-Man, understandably, is worried about being dragged into space at this point, so he plants his feet on a mountain and manages to stop the ship, but Skeletor figures out that He-Man is holding him back. Um, he sees that grappling hook tied to the bottom of the ship, so he increases the thrust, causing He-Man to make a very funny noise. This is an episode worth watching, if only for this noise. She-Ra observes that He-Man is not going to be able to hold out forever, so she cuts the grappling hook, the unbreakable grappling hook, at just the right moment, so... The Velvet Glove pulls free and then smashes into a passing asteroid, wrecking it. <laughs> we cut back to Skeletor, and he's on the floor, slumped in, like, up against the wall, like, holding his head. And Aww. he's like, oh, God. Oh, man. I lost the Velvet Glove. So bummed. Back on the surface, He-Man finds uh, that the grappling hook has been cut, hopes that She-Ra knows what she's doing up there. And he's just talking to himself, too. He-Man is staying there. He's like, I sure hope my sister knows what she's doing. And then here comes a big horse head into frame. He's like, she always knows what she's doing, He-Man. Oh, my God. 
<laughs> which which I like to think is the first time that He-Man ever heard Swift Wind talk. I know it's not, oh, but yeah. that would be a wonderful thing. That's canon now. That's a preferential canon. Back aboard the ship, Skeletor is sitting despondently uh, when the alarm tells him the ship's about to blow up, which actually like bucks him up a little bit. He's like, oh, at least Hordak will die. <laughs> <laughs> so he decides to teleport back to Snake Mountain. Shira looks into the spaceship and sees that Skeletor is left. Hordak is going to die when the ship blows up. So she cuts open the hole and she rescues Hordak. She saves them both from re-entry by putting a shield because her butt starts starts to burn as they're falling into, like, as they're re-entering. This little, like, red heat effect appears on her butt, and she's like, well, better do something Uh. about this. So she makes a little shield, and then they fall through a cloud, and that cools them off. And so she turns the sword into a parachute so they can both survive the landing. And then once they've landed, Hordak comes to, and he's like, I can't believe I was defeated, whatever he says. Anyway, he turns into a rocket and he flies away. (laughs) (laughs) And then He-Man kind of wants to go after him, but She-Ra's like... No, no, he's going to be in enough trouble as it is after wrecking that ship. Later, in the Fright Zone, indeed, Hordak is in trouble. He asks Horde Prime how his vacation was, but Horde Prime is much more interested in how the Velvet Glove is doing and boots Hordak out of the Fright Zone tower when he hears what he's done. At the end of the episode, we get, instead of Lookie, a very special message about how to uh, tell your authority figures if you have been inappropriately touched. This is valuable information for kids. I, of course, do not trust the people who produce He-Man or She-Ra to convey this information, but fair enough. It's so weird to put it at the end of yeah. this episode. I mean, it's like I, I kind of was racking my brain like, what is the right episode of She-Ra to have this at the end of it? But yeah, it's very weird. I wonder if that was a call because like it's absolutely not the correct episode, <laughs> but we can't do an episode that we suggest molestation has happened. So we have chosen this. That's a real possibility. I, I wonder, too, because He-Man is in it. So I wonder if it might have to do with, like, having He-Man around to be in the segment. Yeah, I can see that. But anyway, it's weird because Orko is there to be comic relief in, like, a bumper oh, that really yeah. does not benefit from comic relief. And he's kind of like, he's he's doing, like, a little shadow boxing thing. He's like, oh, if anybody tried to inappropriately touch me, I'd punch him out. It's very awkward. It's a, And it's very short. Like, it's so it's such a short little back and forth that just goes it's a thing that that happens it should never happen it's okay and here is who you should tell that's it yeah and then orko says right on at the end of it <laughs> yeah so anyway other than the strange ending uh i actually i enjoyed this episode it shows how broad like what you can do with this is because i think it's a show that seems very formulaic in some ways but most episodes are not about horde prime they're not about space they're not about he-man like this is all stuff that is kind of out there even for Shira, but it actually fits very organically into this world and these characters. So I really appreciated it. Like I, I like a setting, especially a fantasy setting, that gives me the ability to do weird one-off episodes. Yeah. I was thinking about that too, the kind of diversity of influences that it has, because it does have that sci-fi stuff. It has that kind of techno horror element from the kind of industrial flavor that Hordak brings to it, but also so much fantasy stuff and all of it kind of sits okay together. Mm -hmm. That's just unusual. I can't think of anything else that does that. There are occasionally settings that fuse them to whatever degree, but I like that here it feels like it almost feels like a, like an a, like a an expansive comic book universe in that mm. not only do these things coexist but they don't have to be in like the same admixture every session because like that that's what happens if you play a role playing game where you've got you know one character who is the tech guy and one character is the magic guy we kind of have to have both in the foreground every yes. session and here it's like we can go have a space adventure 
that doesn't really have anything to do with fantasy <laughs> that's just like totally in the other corner of the setting, but it still feels like the same world. That's a really interesting thing about this larger universe. And I think it maybe works better in Etheria than it does in Eternia uh, for reasons mm. that, you know, we'll kind of touch on when we talk about setting next time. But uh, yeah, I, this plot just, I mean, it's sliced very thin, like not much happens. I love the evil versus evil fights in this show. They're some yes. of my favorite episodes. So good. Oh, my God. I want to talk so much about Shadow Weaver. And like, <laughs> oh, my God. So many good things. Well, our listeners will have to wait until next time for that. But we don't. We can talk about that sooner if we get off of plots. So let's do that. Let's talk about um, the question we always ask is, if these adventures that we've just talked about were the sessions of a role playing game, would you be having fun in that campaign? Um, let's see, these particular episodes? Yeah, probably. I mean, especially if there's evil versus evil, yes. And I mean, any chance to make a bad guy just unhappy, not dead, just unhappy. Yeah, I am absolutely with you on that. And I, for that reason, I think too, like the GMing would be very important here. Oh, yeah. Because if I have a GM who is skimming over the effect that this is having on the villains and is just focusing on like, you got to overcome these challenges. You know, you got to overcome the cave in. You got to overcome, you know, the beam from the spaceship. And I'm not getting to like see the angry face of Skeletor or Hordak. Then I think these plots are much less fun. And it becomes apparent how thin they are. Oh, yeah, that is true. Because so much of the episodes hinge on the cutting back and forth to the reaction. Mm -hmm. I feel like you'd have to be really thinking about it in terms of, okay, when is the cutback? Yeah, to accommodate the medium of role playing, you might have to change it. So like, use make more use of the henchmen like um you know catra or whoever people who can be on the scene so that the gm mm. can play them more and give us someone to interact with because some shows do a really good job of you know portraying the bystanders like the innocents that we save or like you know the common folks oh, yeah this show doesn't really <laughs> no, there's like three bystanders <laughs> It's the guy with the axe and those two kids. That's who it is. Yes, yes. The one small family, one lumberjack. This whole <laughs> resistance is for you, buddy. Um. <laughs> <laughs> We're just all about small businesses here in Etheria. Um, oh, God. And um, the outfits. The out Even the peasants are dressed skimpily. And not for practical reasons, <laughs> just because that's how everyone is drawn. I don't understand it. Yeah, it definitely has, like, the extra costuming has that, like, Star Trek The Next Generation feel. Where it's like, well, clearly in the future, people wouldn't wear regular pants, you know? Yeah. Like losers. Just wear less furry underwear, like <laughs> everybody does. But I was like, this is a very sexy lumberjack, but it's being portrayed in a non-sexy way. I don't really know what I'm supposed to be getting out of this. Did you notice, too, that there are a lot of mustaches in this show? So many mustaches. <laughs> and very specific mustaches. It's like... So none of the villains and none of the uber good guys, like, I guess He-Man, He-Man doesn't have one. And then is he the only goodie that doesn't have one? And that's from a different character design, too. That's from a different, I mean, in the sense that, like, these characters weren't created at the same time. And so there were different designers. Uh, what I think is, what you're observing is is true, that there was a someone working on character design for She-Ra specifically who really had a type. That's the only way that yeah. I can explain this. Oh my because God, Bo. Once again, we, we got to talk about characters, but I will say as it relates to plots, because that's what we're talking about now. I felt that Bo could easily have been a very thankless role in the show. And certainly yes. like if you swap the genders, like a lot of cartoons have been afflicted with the female equivalent of a character like Bo being really mm -hmm. useless. And 
I appreciate that they didn't do that to Bo. Yes. He does not challenge She-Ra. Like, he's not pulling focus from her. But he does exist as more than, like, someone to be rescued and is sort of like a generic love interest. He he has an identifiable personality. He feels like a separate character, not like something on Shira's character sheet, which is nice. Uh, yeah. I don't want to pull from plot because I have a lot of both thoughts. So I'll say <laughs> Okay. So yeah, I I guess all that remains for me to say about plots is like, I think that these stories are generally stronger than He-Man stories. I appreciate the ensemble storytelling and I especially appreciate the use of the villains uh, as mm. a really an integral part of, of the show. And I think these plots kind of show like it's really what you want for like a role playing campaign where there's an overarching story, but it's not acting as a stumbling block to doing whatever seems fun this week. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, it's super important because I think, you know, lots of lots of games can do one of those things. But like if you rig the setting too much to have drama, it can start to feel like if every session is not about this then it strains credulity. Yes. And that's not the case here. Like we can do this thing about the velvet glove and it's fine. It doesn't need to be about the resistance. So, and likewise, there's all this really rich backstory that we deal with in those first few uh, episodes about like Eternia versus Etheria and the relationship between Adam and Adora and her family. And it's fine. We can leave that on the table for episode after episode and then come back to it. And it still feels compelling and like it's central to the character. So really well done. Mm -hmm. Next time, we're going to be talking about characters and setting and all that good stuff. Until then, Bob, if our listeners have enjoyed you, then where should they go on the internet to find you? Smashfiction.libsyn.com is where we host. Um, but you can also find Smash Fiction uh, pretty much any of the places where you collect your podcasts and put them into nice lists. We're also on YouTube, not as videos. But, you know, if you're a person who's like, you know, what, I just want to be able to pull something up. YouTube is the place to go. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I do not tweet very often, but sometimes I will. If you want to interact with me more regularly, I am in the Smash Fiction Fan Faction, which is a group on Facebook. It is a private group for people who like to uh, hang out and talk about how weird Henry Cavill's hair looks like in the Witcher picture. <laughs> and then also talk about uh, podcasts that we're listening to, etc. Future historians will be able to date this podcast to the very hour by the reference you have just made. <laughs> That's my goal is to make life better for future historians. <laughs> I've tried to really hone my timeline. As for us, I, we are, of course, Gameable Podcast on Twitter. GameableDisneyPodcast.tumblr.com is where you can find links to all of our old episodes, including the Disney and Pixar episodes. Uh, and the show is on all your various podcatchers, Apple Podcasts, etc., etc. Don't expect much action on Twitter in the very near future because, uh, as listeners will know, Katrina and I are about to have a baby uh, at the time that this episode Heck drops. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's going to be baby time pretty much. Uh, so there won't be very much on the Twitter probably but uh anyway that's where you can find any updates to the show and of course subscribe to the feed like you never know when more when more gameable is coming or something else scepter dials who knows and yeah that's it so we will see you next time for more she-ra yay this has been episode 58 of the gameable saturday morning podcast she-ra is property of its owners this episode's music used under a creative commons license is we are romantic suiciders by ryoma maeda and romantic suiciders Find their work at ryomamaeda.com. That's R-Y-O-M-A-M-A-E-D-A.com. The Gameable Saturday Morning logo is by Claire Mulcairn, and this episode was edited by Dan Mulcairn. This episode is released under Creative Commons Non-Commercial Sharealike License 4.0. Thanks for listening. <laughs>